The only thing worse than the pain in my heart is the emptiness I feel growing behind it. I have been made a fool. Let the mountains crash down. Let the birds in the sky die and one by one fall to earth in front of scores of children. Let time itself leave us behind to stagnate and drown in the ether. This cursed heart, the organic bloom within the cage of my bones, it pumps so still I turn, but it shall beat no more. With this blade, I'll cut it from my breast, wish it luck, then feed it to this hungry machine. A final gift to the one bit of beauty I have known in this world. This world where consistency, equity, and valiance are swiftly muted by aleatory crests and troughs of circumstance. Eat well tonight, my liver mortis. Eat and await the touch of someone made of sterner stuff. I leave you with tonight's song and story. is back for over two years now. Where he goes, I go. What he knows, I know, and maybe it goes the other way, but I've never had a chat with him to find out. He's got hard, rough hands on him from all the work he does out here. Gotta chop wood once a week and fetch the water every day. There's more than that, but that's a lot of what I see. I see what he sees. When Marcus takes a look at something, that's what I gotta do, too. I've tried to find a way off this ride, but for the life of me, I can't. I can't really see what went on in his life. Not the way you can with your own memories. I just see pieces here and there. But from what I can get, he was not a child who was loved. I guess that'll make a lot of sense to you soon. I never saw flashes of his folks in him to know that. I can just feel something, like half a gallon of compassion missing inside him. That's how I know he didn't have love when he was little, because you gotta get it from somewhere to give it, right? 
First, I guess I'll tell you a little about how I met Marcus. I was an electrician before all this, but I always wanted to try to be a writer. One of those guys, uh, Vonnegut maybe, worked at GE for a while. Maybe I could have switched over into books like him. I think about that sometimes. Maybe a lot. It would have been nice, I bet. Things didn't go that way, and although I wouldn't say I'm happy about it, I understand that there's no changing it. Too much bad going on in the world to worry about the things that happen to one person, especially if it's yourself. So I was out walking when I didn't used to be quite so tall as Marcus. I went out far from my house that evening. I had already put the kids to bed and I gave a kiss to Mary and told her to go ahead and sleep if she wanted. Beautiful Mary. The day she put the ring on my finger, I knew I'd been given a good life. Anything after that day was gravy on top. I didn't know if it was going to be half a mile or a two-mile kind of night. The doctor just said I had to walk more. He didn't give me a map. I must have let my mind drift and I ended up walking a straight shot for five miles. I don't remember what I was thinking about. Just enjoying the night, the cool air, the quiet, all of it. Sometimes that's all you need, a little quiet. Silence is the canvas, man. A lot of people don't get that. I thought of calling Mary, but I hadn't seen a phone booth for some time. I stopped and looked up, and I could see more stars out there than I could from my back porch. A little less light from town mucking things up. That night was really something, still and dark and beautiful. The kind of cool that makes your sweater do just the right amount of work. Uh, that night. Mm. Sorry, I want to talk about something else for a minute. When I was a kid, my mom read me all kinds of stories. That's not special, I know. Let me rephrase. I'm aware that that's not a unique experience. And all through those years she read to me, I remember that I would imagine how I'd react in the character's shoes when a conflict came up. I'd think about how they'd never do what I thought I'd do. A small misunderstanding would snowball into a fight between families, and I'd wonder how the hell no two people could ever think to meet in the middle of a field for a parlay. I understood suspension of disbelief as a concept, but I still felt like every story underplayed the importance of an honest conversation. How long have I been talking? Time is funny now. I'm moving. We're moving. It's dawn and we're walking somewhere through the high reeds. Early dawn. We swing a flashlight around to augment the light of the newborn sun. We stop to look at a patch of grass and grab a clump of dirt and roll some of it in our big fingers. Marcus doesn't talk, but he's not stupid. He's picked up a trail, so we follow it. We turn off the flashlight and scan above the reeds, moving one quiet step at a time over the soft, wet ground. Marcus begins to feel something inside. His feelings are always less potent by the time they get to me. It's like trying to tell the flavor of a food someone else has already chewed. 
This one is a shade of craving. He feels like he's walking across the room to turn on the air conditioning on a hot day. We make it to the edge of a river where morning light finally spills onto the water and mud. At the end of what we can see, there's the point when the water disappears into the sky. Right in front of our face, there are a couple of mosquitoes flying around. And somewhere in between, there's a little tent with a quiet radio on inside. When I was a kid, we went to church. That's where I found out about the angels and the infinite green pastures and the pure eternal life you could live in them if you were good for the duration of your stay on earth. Of course, along with that, we learned about the blazing fires of hell into which souls that didn't make the holy cut were tossed. Heavy metal blasting through blown-out speakers, blood pouring out of an upside-down priest's eyes, flames as high as mountains charring the flesh off your body so bad that the sizzle in your ears overtakes all the rest. But I didn't believe that. That sounds bad, don't get me wrong. But there were worse things I could imagine. Once you get used to the burnt skin, at least there would be all the spectacle to occupy your mind. In one of the stories my mom read to me, there was a woman who stole something from a witch. This must have been written before the Disneyfication of fairy tales, because the witch caught her and she locked her in a tower high up in the sky, where more than anything, it was cold and quiet. She sealed up the one window with stone, so no matter what time of day it was, the thieving woman would only see darkness. Finally, the witch touched the woman's forehead said a few magic words, and made her live forever. Forever in that lonely tower. That sounded far closer to hell for my money. I wondered if the woman could have talked her way out of the situation with the witch. If she'd offered a hundred apologies and returned the thing she'd stolen immediately, would the witch have been so over the top with her punishment? This was the start of an idea I had. Back when I still thought of writing things for a living, I wanted to develop it into a novel. As I think we often do when we're younger and more energetic, I overreached. I decided that one book wouldn't be enough to tell the story that was blooming in my head. No, clearly I needed three. Over the course of a month, I scribbled down an outline for a trilogy. In the first book, my main character would go out into the world and accept it as it was, getting bounced around and doing nothing about it. In the second book, she'd become a terror to anyone that disagreed with her about anything. Then there'd be the third book, where she realized that it's possible to be open about what you want out of life while respecting the fact that other people might see things differently. She'd harness the power of an honest conversation and everything would fall into place. There were more details in the notes, I promise. I bought a new laptop and started writing a few pages before work every day. Mary would come out on the porch and read a book next to me some mornings, and I'd try to keep my keystrokes quiet. That was an amazing year. I was making some progress on the first book. Mary got a promotion and our income went up, so much so that we talked about me giving up being an electrician and focusing on writing. That was what we planned on. 
I'd work for another month and then make the transition to struggling writer. I was wiring something in a basement somewhere when she called to tell me the news. Mary was pregnant. First, I want to tell you that I was happy because she was so happy. I wanted to feel that joy with her. The second thing I considered was whether our plan would change. I got home that night and we laughed and cried and we talked. She told me that we could still afford for me to give up my job to work on the book. That plan lasted another few weeks until Mary had an ultrasound that the doctor was especially excited about. She told us that she'd heard something on the ultrasound, but assured us that everything was fine. We watched as she put the scan up, me squeezing Mary's hand while she stared straight ahead, doing her best to unravel the meaning of that arcane image before us. There's your baby's heart, she said, and we held our breath for a long two seconds. And there's your other baby's heart. And there is your other baby's heart. Congratulations! We get right up next to the tent by the river with the radio playing inside, and we pull the baseball bat out of our backpack. It's still early morning. The bugs have woken up, or maybe they never went to sleep. With the fat end resting in our palm, Marcus turns the bat around and around, that familiar weight, those tiny indentations that he knows, all of it intensifying the feeling in him. I've always hated this part. I was telling you about the night when I was walking, far out from our house where the kids slept and Mary was in bed. It was cool and most of the light was from the stars rather than the street lights. I decided I'd gone far enough and turned to head back. When I turned, I saw him, tall, standing still, two feet from me. Solid and dark, he seemed to cover my whole view of the way back home. And when I saw him, my head bounced off something hard and I went to sleep. When I woke up, I couldn't support my own head. I was hanging from a sturdy belt passed around my torso, mounted to something, but I couldn't tell what. Every sense was making guesses. I moved my eyes back and forth to see more of my surroundings, but the downward angle of my neck was the one I was stuck with. The floor was concrete and wet. In the light of a lamp behind me, I saw a mint green upright freezer, the door open. Inside it, there were several stacks of meat wrapped in plastic. When I managed to pick my head up finally, I saw that I was in what looked like the basement of a cabin, stone walls and dirt everywhere. Leaning over a steel sink off to one side was a large figure with its back turned to me. Him. A sound left my throat. A croak. That's when Marcus turned away from the sink and walked over. Slow. I counted the steps four of them. After the last one, he slid a bucket under me and stuck something in my neck. Sharp. The room got dark, but the lamp never flickered. And as everything went away, I saw a table where a butchered dough lay. Beside it, 
On the finger of a human hand was my wedding ring, gleaming bright in the strange dark. We step up to the tent and make a guess where she is inside. We get lucky and it feels like we split her head open with the first swing. She was asleep. The third blow stops the scream that started after the second. We're strong. The moving water sounds behind our heavy breathing. We feel the effort in our hands and our lungs. I've tried to stop him before. He kills and he cuts and he eats. I don't want any of it, but we don't have a channel for conversation. She coughs out a tooth into the pool of blood and spit next to her mouth. I try to clench fists that aren't mine. I try to hold them down at my waist, but they aren't mine. This is 16? 17? The bat misses and hits the mud. We pull it out and continue to pound the body. He's tenderizing it. Her. I can't talk to him. I can't tell him why he should stop. He's instinct. There's no planning. It's only what he wants and what he's capable of, which are the same. He wants and he does. And the bat comes down again. The crunch vibrates into our hands. Marcus wants and he does. I wanted to write. I didn't. But I couldn't. Three of them. All of them wanted to eat and shit and I just wanted to write. But instead I looked at a hundred technical drawings and tested a thousand capacitors and came home tired. The severed hand on the table. The ring that Mary put on my finger. I think of my body dressed out and piled next to the venison in the freezer. It's not fair. I could have raised them and then when all three were out of the goddamn house I could have finished the first book. Or I could have drowned them and maybe I'd have gone to prison instead of for a walk that would leave me dead and eaten, murdered and consumed with my soul, my consciousness, whatever this is, strained out and grafted onto this idiot monster. How much have we done together now? Do we share a fate? When he dies, which one of us will be judged? We look down. We stand by the river and the full morning light shows us that we've torn the tent open and turned half of the camping girl to pulp. I feel something. Something beyond my own disgust. Something from Marcus. And it's clearer than anything has ever been from him. Disappointment. He wanted to stop swinging the bat two minutes ago. He wanted to leave the meat intact. I wouldn't let him. I wouldn't let him. I feel as if I'm brushing against his mind for the first time and it's fragile, made of rust. We burn some of the camper's things, bury the rest, and drag the ruined body back to the cabin, and the whole time we share the work. I'm more than a stowaway now. Marcus doesn't have mirrors in the cabin. I use his hand to pull a large knife from a drawer in the kitchen, and there's no resistance to this. I tilt the steel blade so it reflects his face, showing me my first good look at him. Even with the gray in his beard, it's the sad face of an angry child who gets everything he wants but in the wrong color. The hand drops the knife, but I pick it back up. With Marcus's eyes, I look around the cabin. 
We walk to a closet where he keeps something that has to do with me. He tries to hide it from me, but it doesn't work. We open the door and on the floor there is a large plastic tote. It's full of ID cards, keys, purses, and other things that the owners won't need anymore. We rake our fingers through them. I concentrate, feeling the different materials on his skin. My skin. I find the ring that Mary put on my finger. He fights me, but I slam our hand flat on the wall and force the wedding band down onto his little finger, the only one that will have it. I suddenly have even more control, but it won't last. There's no time to make a phone call or to write a note that will confuse Mary and make her cry. I walk Marcus down the basement stairs, gripping the knife and trying to keep the rusty edges of his will away from the parts of the brain that move our legs. I switch on the lamp, and when we see the freezer, he wants to open it and eat. I push that thought aside, and we lurch over to the table on which that butchered dough rested two years ago. I force us to climb onto it and lie on our back. He screams with an angry little voice inside our head. He fights, but for the first time, he doesn't win. I reach up with the knife and push it into our neck, puncturing something that matters. The blood starts to leave us, and soon it has. There's gray in front of our eyes, and behind that, a bright light grows. Brighter. A sound like the hum of electricity grows with the light and together they mean excitement, life, and movement. The infinite. The hum turns to a crackle. I can feel it. I can smell it. I can taste a flavor I've never tasted before. Somehow I know that this radiance is going to explode and open up the next world. But then it's cold. It's dark, and that's all it is. Hurry all, hurry over, under cattail clover lays the body of a woman I know. Farmer's only daughter While she swam in the water She was wrestled by the swift undertow She swam and she struggled And her arms flailed and fumbled She managed to make it to shore She crawled through the rushes Called the sparrow but her poor heart could give her no more Someday we'll tell you all deeds are counted Each action answer we must And others will have that it's merely by chance no different are we from the dust The chance implies option And no matter 
what cautions we take Every outcome's the same And like my acquaintance With her life left truncated We all suffer sorrow and pain Efforts and the luck we may gather Our transient life we must give Hurry all, hurry over Under cattail and clover The body of a woman now lies Did she pay for her misdeeds Or suffer fate of the swift creek or the curse that we all someday die. No 
is Henry, and Drew is about to thank some people. Livermore and podcast would like to give a special thank you to Susie, to Nermal, to Alan and his kids, Ebenezer Moses Malachi, and the most important of all, who's that? All of the fans who listened this season. Oh, yeah, that was pretty cool. We appreciate it, y'all. Yeah, we do. I'm sorry you said y'all. Goodbye. 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 Oh, boy. For now. (laughs) See you in 2022.